Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Amon. Dr. Amon wrote the book, Gonstead the Adjuster. I first met Dr. Amon back in 2007 when he brought Roger Earps to the Meeting of the Minds. That was an experience I'll never forget. Today, I'm going to talk with Dr. Amon about the process that led to the creation of the book, Gonstead the Adjuster, and some of the stories he discovered along the way. So without any further ado, Dr. Matthew Amon. Hello, Dr. Mon. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Could you uh, start off by letting us know a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and how you got into Gonstead Chiropractic? Certainly. I, uh, I, was, I grew up in Cross Plains, Wisconsin, which is not far from Mount Ford. And uh, when I was growing up, periodically, my mom had some lower back pain. And uh, as a kid, we would uh, make a trek over to Mount Forb and, and sit in that clinic there, which was, as a kid, it was very impressive. And, uh, you know, my mom would go and put a gown on and, you know, we would, you know, take along with her, us kids. And from there we would go and she would get adjusted by uh, Dr. Clinton. And uh, it was an impressionable experience. I mean, I certainly thought it was neat. Um, the physical structure of the building and uh, just the experience of a chiropractor. Uh, we weren't patients as kids though, because we, you know, we didn't really sort of have any aches or pains or anything like that. So, um, but uh, many, many years later, I had uh, personally developed a neck injury and it was something that kind of hung with me for many, many years. And when I was in college at UW Madison, I ended up going to a chiropractor. And it was not a Gonstead chiropractor, but it was a transformative experience. And uh, by going to that chiropractor, Dr. Tyler, it was, you know, he had addressed some neck pain that I had for many, many years. So I, I was really impressed with that. So uh, one thing led to another, and I was sort of a junior at UW-Madison, and I decided to sort of pivot and, you know, pursue becoming a chiropractor. So I, I moved in that direction and eventually went to Northwestern uh, up in the Twin Cities and, and went to school there and then practiced for a while. Uh, as part of schooling, I eventually ended up at a Gonstead seminar and kind of came to recognize what the difference was being a Gonstead chiropractor versus a diversified adjuster, and, uh, and, and, and did that. So um, that's what was sort of my introduction into chiropractic and then eventually getting to know, you know, through Gonstead chiropractic. Yeah, and then you, uh, didn't you serve an internship at the, in the Gonstead Clinic? Uh, no, it was a little different than that. I was actually practicing in Cross Plains, Wisconsin, and then um, the clinic had gotten purchased by Phyllis Markham. Oh, okay. Richie Liu, and then Larry Troxel became heavily involved in, in sort of helping to manage the clinic with, with Phyllis. And as part of that, there was they needed assistance. They needed somebody to, to work there on kind of a part-time basis to see new patients and stuff like that. And I, I worked, you know, I was wor working in Cross Plains and I was an acquaintance of Dan Lyons. And so um, I sort of volunteered to help out. So I, I worked over there at the clinic for, it was less than a year, I think, but I, I did work there. I went and saw um, uh, Larry. We sort of had this sort of interview and everything like that. And I was not a Troxel intern because I went to Northwestern. 
but uh, I, I had a good time with Larry, and eventually I worked there for for a while. Um, and it, as part of that process, it sort of became possible for me to start thinking about writing a book about Clarence Gonstead. That's when, <laughs> when you when you were a kid and you were growing up around there. Did you did you at that time recognize the gravity of the Gonstead Clinic and all that, or was it just something that was there and you think nothing of it because you're a kid? I, I think it's industry specific. You know, I think the, uh, I mean, the Gonstead Clinic and Clarence Gonstead, you know, he's fairly well known in the community. Um, just like any somewhat famous in a smaller town is. I mean, you know, it, it could be as simple as like, everybody's going to know, you know, the, the famous home builder or the famous attorney, you know, I mean, it, it, every community has that type of person. And in and, and Mount Horvitt happened to be Clarence Constant. So yes, I mean, you kind of knew who he was. And again, the clinic itself and his character and led to this sort of mythical story that that happened and you know a lot of patients people had been patients of his over the years so there was there was always that you know people if you said oh yeah i went and saw clarence Gonson, most people in their you know over the age of 30 back you know years ago would know who that would be so he was he was that well known yeah so how did you um how did you get to that moment when you first start started realizing that you that you were putting together a book and you started going, I have information. I can, I can make something out of this. How did the so, book get started? So the book started because I was studying history of science and medicine at UW Madison. Uh, they have an undergraduate program in that and uh, I enjoyed it. I, uh, I took a number of classes. One of my professors, Ronald numbers was, uh, you know, he, he's a, a very important person in the world of history of medicine. And so their program there is very rigorous and, 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 fascinating. I absolutely loved it. So, um, that the education on my part of like their, you know, understanding history of science, history of medicine was there. And so I, I really never set out to think about, you know, at some point, do I want to write a book? I, I was more interested in being a you know, practitioner. Uh, and I was very interested in the, sort of the business of chiropractic as well, because it was, it was sort of unique in the Madison area with HMOs and chiropractors working directly for healthcare organizations. So that was a unique thing going on back in the 90s. And I was a product of it. You know, I mean, my, I went to an HMO chiropractor. It's sort of unique. Um, and it was fully covered. And, and uh, you know, it's just, that was a unique time for the business of chiropractic. But uh, the educational component, when I first got into chiropractic, I thought it was an interesting story. The other thing is, you know, there's this, there's so many stories of Clarence Gonstead that you would hear. Uh, I just felt like I was in a unique position to sort of take those on. And I started writing them down and uh, quickly felt that uh, the previous biographies that had been out were sort of, they were very light. You know what I mean? If you look at like yeah. scholastic aptitude of those those it was just really light and i felt that you know clarence gonstead was worthy of like a really you know try to dig as deep as you can and i i did stumble across a really good article about robert caro who had written a number of books about lyndon b johnson and he's sort of a mythical uh, biographer kind of guy i mean he's just i mean he's a pure surprise winning kind of 
author, and, and he's he's written the definitive series on Lyndon B. Johnson and sort of power and politics. And, and I, I read an article about him and his process, and I was like, gosh, Clarence Gonsett would be a good person for me to sort of dig that type of detail into, you know, what does Clarence Gonsett mean? Why was he so special to chiropractic? And, and you know, why was he a special practitioner? What, what, what was his secret recipe and what it, did it mean? So that kind of background brought me to sort of start collecting material. And then the other thing is I, I had patients when I was practicing for explains that were patients of his. So I wasn't hard for me to ask people like, Hey, did you see Clarence Gonson? They'd say, no, I saw Alex Cox, but let me tell you the story of that experience. So I, I felt obligated to start writing their stories down uh, and their testimonials. And so Living in the area, I also had access to people who either worked at the clinic or worked at the character. And so I, you know, it was very easy for me to spend my free time driving around and, and, and doing the legwork like an investigative reporter and, and dig into the details of this story of Clarence Townsend. And that's very much what I did. I, I spent many years five years or so really just gathering information and going as deep as I could. And, you know, to really know somebody like Clarence Gonstead, it, it was difficult because he himself was just a, simply a practitioner. He wasn't, a, you know, he wasn't a, a scholar in, in, in terms of writing things down. You, it was just like you had to interview enough people to really get to know the story of Clarence Gonstead. And, you know, interestingly enough, the Internet started to really take off. And so Google, you know, started to help me figuring out his story in terms of like facts and figures and, and that helped a fair amount too. And, and then, you know, just the other thing that kind of helped as well, and this is more recently is you, you, you have these archives that develop so you can really dig into the details. Like you can do a search string uh, through newspapers, uh, you know, from 1910 to present day, you know, doing Clarence Gonstead as the, as the key words and, and information is now available. So you can really find all those resources versus digging through microfilms blindly, you know, you think microfilm for years and, and try to find something. But now it's, it's much easier. So I was sort of on the cusp of that. And it allowed me to sort of put together, you know, a lot of this information. The other critical thing that made my project successful, where I think maybe some of the others would have not had as much success was uh, two things. First, I was not particularly of the camp of uh, the Gonstead Seminars run by the Cox brothers, nor was I a, a disciple of Larry Troxell. I mean, I went to Northwestern uh, and I knew John Thatcher, but I was not uh, a disciple of his either. Just by happenstance, I, I was not, uh, I was unable to secure an internship with him when I was in school because the, he only took, uh, you know, one or two students really, if at all. And so it was difficult. So that was the first thing. And, and then the second thing that was really helped me be successful in this project was Phyllis, unfortunately, was at the very end of her life. And she was she's critical to this story because she was sort of the keeper of the information. She was the keeper of the treasure. And so Phyllis, um, when I first started working at a clinic, she didn't know who I was. And I, I was certainly an outsider to her, but um, I did have some serious and heart heart conversations with her about what she felt the future of the clinic should be. Cause she had helped purchase that. I mean, it was really sort of her project. 
And so I wanted to really understand what her vision was for the clinic. And as part of that, she shared with me a lot of information through storytelling. And then second of all, she did give me a lot of critical documents, um, which proved very helpful to, to write this because there wasn't like much information out there. And, you know, if you're going to get information, you've got to have original documents. And Phyllis had, she really had like three large boxes full of critical Gonstead uh, memorabilia, which I could read through. It was letters. It was flyers. It was anything that, you know, promotional material. It was correspondence letters between her and other people. I mean, that's when I finally got that, then I was in a real position to start crafting the, the Gonstead story. So those were really the two sort of things that helped me be successful in writing this, this book. Yeah, I was known, I was flipping through the pages just a little bit before we got started, and I was re reading, reminding myself again of the story of um, even the simple story of how Gonstead um, worked for J.B. Olson for a time, and how Gonstead's version of the story didn't match other people's version of the story. Did you find a lot of that that as you were looking through, you found evidence that didn't match the story you had always heard? Yeah, I mean the the, the classic example is the mechanical engineer story. It's very easy to, to, to go digging into that and see, you know, Clarence presented himself as a mechanical engineer. I mean, it was interesting because he was careful about it because he only presented it really to the chiropractic world. He didn't, he didn't really promote that in the local community nor in the Madison market that, you know, he was a graduate of UW-Madison, you know, he was on the rowing team and, you know, uh, Delta Epsilon and then went on to become a chiropractor. He never told that story. And so for good reason, because he, it, that wasn't true. I mean, so his story was of him becoming a mechanical engineer and, and at UW-Madison was sort of fabricated. It was something that just added to the story. He never really corrected it. And again, it's important to recognize that that, that kind of story, that, that myth that sort of developed was something that happened much later in his life. This isn't a guy who created that story in his 20s, 30s, 40s. It was really in his, his late 50s, if I remember right, that that, sort of that myth of his collegiate education at UW Madison and becoming a mechanical engineer got started. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something he really talked about. And so... When I, you know, I, I dug into that, of course, and, and clearly he was not a mechanical engineer. Um, and again, this is this is really, you know, we're talking about the 20s here. I mean, it's not like the educational system now where you're like, you know, people go to school, and become engineers. This is back in the, you know, the teens when you're, you're really dealing with like advent of world wars and, and you know, it's a farming community and, and automobile industry is just starting to take off. I mean, there's a lot of value in just being a, an automobile mechanic. And, and that seems to be where the true background lies rather than mechanical engineer program uh, as an undergrad at UW Madison. So that, that was one fact that like, when I, when I was presented with that, I was like, this is interesting, but it, I don't think it's necessarily true. And when I dug into the details of it, it clearly it wasn't. And I was able to dig up, dig up enough evidence say that that wasn't the case. Hmm, interesting. As you were digging through things, was there a moment, did you ever find something that in your head you thought, this is enormous, this is huge, this changes everything? Did you have any moments like that? 
I did. I, I think it wasn't chiropractic related, though. I, I, <laughs> you know, because I mean, like, there's, I mean, chiropractic, that's your life. You know, you, it's the work yeah. you do every day. You start, the personal side of thing, right, things is, is where you sort of like have these like, wow, this is really interesting. I think the one that was uh, kind of jumped out to me was his Cayman Islands uh, financial <laughs> disaster that sort of happened. I mean, like, it, give the guy a lot of credit. I mean, he, he tried That's to true. do a number of business ventures outside of chiropractic. And I think the Cayman Island thing is like, you know, way out there. I mean, to think of a guy who's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to heavily invest money into a Caribbean island dream to create this resort with Hotel Gonstead, that was really remarkable to pull across that and, and yeah. see some of the original pictures and plots of land that were, were being sold to chiropractors. Uh, that was like, wow, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was really, to see those original drawings and everything like that it was really neat. I mean, I, I thought that was really neat. The yeah. other thing was, so that was neat. The second thing that really stunned me and, and this was from the very beginning i remember my first reels i remember the first time seeing what i think it's called the gonstead touch or it is. it's the first sort of soft biography about clarence gonstead the booklet that you could buy and i was really shocked at his house i mean that house um from an architectural perspective is is one of a kind i mean it's it's on par with like tail yesen by frank lloyd wright in spring green it to me i think that's another like for Clarence Gonson made an imprint on, 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 on chiropractic, but when you look outside of it, his house actually made a huge impression and, and has its own place in the, the sort of story of Clarence Gonstead. I mean, people visit the house because of its architectural significance. And in some ways, uh, the house is, is, is as successful in terms of its his his legacy as his own chiropractic world was. So that's something that I don't think chiropractors necessarily appreciate very much. But the architecture of his house, because I mean, it, it costs a lot of money to do that project, and and, and it, it's certainly one of a kind. Um, and so that those were the two items that really stunned me, uh, that I, I was really not expecting. Yeah, I was going to bring up the Cayman Island thing. Because I have a lot of students that come to my office and I have my books out on a bookshelf. And almost without exception, they come in, they look at my books. The first one they take off the shelf is yours. They open it up and then they get to the page on the Cayman Islands and they're like, look at this. Did you know about this? And it's like the thing that everybody looks at and they're like, I've never heard about this. And yeah, in my head, I can only imagine discovering that and being like, well, this can't be real. And you're right to be able to look at it and you can see that it's got a plot map, even telling you how much it costs for a lot. <laughs> like, yes. I want to buy one. Yes. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. It's on page 251, 252. And you, I mean, you see the blue coloring of the pool on, on, the, on the right side there. And then Hotel Gonstead. And, and, and you see Gonstead Road, blue fin circle. I mean, it, it's... It was an amazing project that just unfortunately collapsed. No. The vision is huge. And actually, I think when I saw that, the one thing I got from it, if I didn't get anything else, is I saw this and I thought, this tells me how big a vision he had, which explains how he did what he did. Because <laughs> the man was not short on vision. Certainly. Uh, and I guess the other thing is, so right before I got to that page, 
there's some other stuff. And it reminded me, because um, Tom Potus brought this up when I talked with him, um, that Gonstead, before he built the big clinic, actually had drawn up plans to enlarge his previous clinic before yes. he abandoned that and built a bigger one. And you have those plans in here, which are really cool. Yes. I, and uh, I, was, I was very happy to make sure that we got that as a two-page spread so that people could really see the, the detail uh, of that project. I mean, it's a magnificent mid-century modern building that was unfortunately never, never created. But uh, I mean, that was the original vision. This was a, a beautiful clinic that was, was supposed to be built there on Main Street. Um, the, 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 the Mount Horb, the, the board there, the building board, et cetera, uh, decided against it. So he had to, to build that larger structure on the, on the east side of town. But yeah, that was, it was great to stumble across that. And again, um, that was, that rendering was brought to my attention. You know, that was part of Phyllis's collection that she had shared with me. Um, so it was very nice to be able to make sure that people, you know, saw what, what was, what, what almost happened, but it didn't. So, and again, yeah. that, that's the beauty of this book project. It shows, you know, the complete story of what if, and then what, what did happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at these plans, and it's funny. There's like um, two or three rooms that are labeled as dentist office and then attorney <laughs> office. And you're like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Um, but it's just it's just funny. I, who knows what was even in his head, I think, sometimes because he wasn't always real. I mean, that's one of the funny things about Clarence is even when he uh, was giving people his technique, he always held a little something back for himself. He wasn't the most forthcoming guy. So... It's interesting how you have to get the details from other people sometimes. Otherwise, it's just a mystery. Yeah, and again, that's that second story. I mean, he was, he was you know, when he was putting this together, it was like, you know, he had already been renting out, in his original space, he had been renting out to an optometrist. So, I mean, he he, he recognized the value of office space and, and having other renters be involved in the project. So, yeah, and it's it's also great too because you get things in here. You can tell kind of the story about the caracol, which is great because it. Well, I guess it's kind of there, but it's not really there. It's not the there that I remember. Um, so having having lost that, some of the important features of it, um, it's great to at least have it in written form if we can't visually see it. Yes, and I, I if I, I I'll have to look through the book again, but I I tried to include as many visuals as I possibly could, even though they were not if they were not good quality because it would be you know for somebody like yourself or somebody else new to the Gigantic work we never had the opportunity to visit the caracol you would have never saw you know what the lobby of uh, you know would have been of the caracol or the dining hall things like that and and clearly i mean these are very unique structures and they're, they're once in a lifetime types of buildings that would never be created again and i think it just adds to the whole straight plan concept yeah absolutely uh, were there? I know you interviewed a lot of people as you did this. Were there any interviews that you did with anybody that to you were, were really special because it it kind of got you to see things a little bit differently? Any, anything that really stands out in your mind? Yeah, there were certainly a number of people that I enjoyed talking to. Uh, in no particular order, I think you know one that stands out is Marvin Clay's. Uh, he was very he worked as a, uh, an early associate of Clarence Johnstead, and and his story to me about that experience, which. You know, he was from national, so he came from a different type of education. And, and for him to come up and talk, uh, I, I mean, sorry, work there, and the, the sheer volume of patients he saw, um, you know, it was it was an interesting experience. It was a non 
Cox story in some ways. Because, you know, the Coxes were always there in some way. So Marvin to tell that story was great. Harvey Storm was another associate, which was, you know, it was very nice to talk to Harvey. Harvey, you know, I, I think he retired recently, but he was in Madison. He left the Gonsai Clinic and go worked um, in Madison. And it was great to talk to him because, he, you know, he talked about Clarence Gonsai and sort of the, the the economics of, of being an associate in that um, uh, so that was that was good uh, I did spend a lot of time with Alex which was nice uh, it took a little while for him to warm up but uh, I certainly enjoyed every moment I had with him and, and, uh, and telling uh, what you know what he knew and re he recalled of, of the whole experience uh, Phyllis was was interesting she was very difficult to, to get to you know Phyllis had a very singular vision for Clarence, and, and uh, she was so close to this, to to everything. It it, it, it certainly, um, I could see how others had felt that she was a difficult person to talk to or work with at times. Um, I, I enjoyed talking to her, but I could I could see how there there it would at times it was it was tough to to get objective information from her at times. Larry Troxel was another, I'm glad I, very, I talked to Larry uh, officially as like an interview. Um, one of the more challenging interviews I had was Lee Vogel. Uh, I did talk to Lee Vogel, uh, but it, he, he was like a clam. He wouldn't tell me anything. And it took me a, a, a while over the course of about 15 minutes to kind of have him warm up and share with me a little bit of information. But he, he did not share. He had, probably had all these stories, and he just simply wouldn't tell me them. He was an old man who was very upset about the whole Gonsted situation. Uh, he did sue Clarence Gonsted um, successfully and was awarded, uh, I think, with $1,000 uh, over his situation there when the clinic was being built. He was kind of moved out of the, the seminar business and out of management of the, the clinic. So. The other would have been Ned McGinley. I would have loved to talk to that guy, but I never got to talk to him. He had died many years before he ran the Caracol. Uh, although his wife, Polly McGinley, uh, she, I think, might be still alive. She and Phyllis were good friends, and, and they were sort of responsible for handling the chapters, the sale of the chapters, and the revenue that was generated from that to help purchase the Caracol. I never did get to interview Polly McGinley. Uh, I don't know what kind of stories were there. That would have been it would have been fun to get something from her, but I unfortunately did not get much from her. Oh. Anyway, those are some that stand out in my mind. Well, it's funny because you're interviewing people that are trying to recall memories from a long time ago, and I know I'm not half as old as they are, and I can't remember things from half my life ago. So when you're getting information from people, it's not like anybody's trying to mistell the story, but they're telling it from their perspective the best they can as they remember it. When you start getting conflicting information, how did you start? How did you figure out what's most likely true, or are any of them telling the truth, or is it somewhere in between? How did you kind of ferret that out to try to find where the truth probably lies? Uh, corroborating uh, stories, I guess. I would I would talk to as many people about that particular situation to figure out what I felt was the the best. What, what was the truth? I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that's what I. I mean, it was, again, you have a number of players involved in this, so you could either get it from, Alex had his version of it, Phillips would have his, uh, Ray Clinton would have his, um, 
Marv Clay may have another. I mean, between talking to enough people, you, you could figure out, you know, who is what the, what the truth really was, um, and, and try to see through the motivations of, of each individual person trying to tell their story. So, again, I think the key thing for it was to simply not talk to three people, but to try to talk to everybody to figure out what is the closest story to the truth as possible. And, and that's what I really focused on is just talking to as many people. And I think one of the nice things I tried to do as much possible in this book is, is I, I tried to put as much as possible in the end notes of each chapter. So in some ways, like there's a lot of neat or, you know, a lot of fascinating stories that you could just see in the end notes. And so, you know, uh, between conversations, you know, with, with people, um, you know, you get to see, then it's, you know, for example, like Lee Vogel is an interesting guy. And, and again, I, I tell a little bit more about who he was and his relevance to the story. In the true sense, it wouldn't belong in the actual body of the chapter, but it would be, it's worthy of finding its way in the end notes. But if, if that was the case, I just put additional information in an end note. So if somebody's reading the book and maybe wants to through it a second time, I, I would tell you to really spend some time in the end notes because there's a lot of good information there. Yeah. And in addition to just covering Gonstead himself, you have a good amount of information that also kind of lends to understanding the Gonstead outside the clinic, although there was very little Gonstead outside the clinic. Um, there was a Gonstead outside the clinic, but from his cars to his airstrip, um, the planes, all that kind of thing, that people can see that personal side of him and how that fed into his life as well. Yes, I think, you know, like you, like I said, the house is, is something just, it's really hard to, to believe, you know, that he had this type of house and then he had an airstrip and then he went on to own, you know, some beautiful aircraft as well and then again i it was wonderful to talk to the uh, uh i never got to talk to the pilot foxy was his nickname and, and but he, he had long passed away but his uh, his employer was was knew a lot about him and so he filled me in on a lot of the details of clarence johnson and, and foxy's uh you know being the pilot for clarence johnson and flying him down to you know the chicago Air, uh, executive airport and then you know just all that so yeah that was that was certainly a nice to, to add the cars the add because i mean you got the elvis cadillac story in there you've got you know some of the other cadillacs that that he owned and then you know planes i did i have not i was on i was unsuccessful in, in sort of digging or, or locating where his current his, his uh, beachcraft is currently that was just one thing I never did find out. With maybe more time, I would have maybe figured that out. But at the, at the by the time of publication, I, I never did find it because I would have loved to have been able to go find the beach crap and take a few photos of it and and share it in the book. But it, it just never happened. Yeah, yeah, it's great because I've often found that the experience of walking through the clinic is. Um, if you're into the Gonset thing, if you're into chiropractic, it's, it's like walking through a museum. Mm -hmm. And so this book is about the closest thing you can get to actually being there. But what it does is it puts you back in time. If you go to the clinic now, you see the clinic now and you can kind of imagine how it was. And what I liked about the book is that it cleans up some of those things so that you have a more accurate imagination of how it actually was. 
you can, yeah, you, can you, you can get a better understanding. So it kind of like takes you back in time. It's kind of, it's kind of fun that way. Great. I'm glad you, you, you felt that way about it. I was, you know, as part of my, my aim is to, to try to take you back to that particular period. Yeah. I find that the older guys, when they look at it, we have a different conversation than when I talk to the young guys about it. It's very <laughs> interesting that way. Like for them, for the young guys, it's this novelty of what this guy was, what he did, what chiropractic can become, how he carved out his own piece of the pie. And it just kind of gives them inspiration and gives them that kind of thing. With the old guys, um, it's more uh, it's it's more like reading through a yearbook. It's kind of a reminiscing of, oh yes, that's what we were, that's who we were, that's where we came from. We need to get back to our roots. It's it's just like a different little different conversation. It's just it's it's cool that it can have that effect. Yeah, I'm glad people have felt that uh, feel that way about it. Um, um, it it's even just slow, like right now. I'm just thumbing through it, and it's just. Um, it's just funny how you see so many different things. So you even do get into um, kind of his disc theory. And I think um, to some degree, we often think of the disc theory as being, oh, this is just his pet theory. And then he taught it to his disciples. And yet you've got some documentation showing that it was not just his little pet theory to himself. He got quite a bit of notoriety in the profession and all over the place from what he was saying. Yeah, I, I think the disc theory fits in it fits in nicely with current science of the time, and I think he was able to to really use that uh, the disc concept as as um, a new way of looking at understanding adjustments and how subluxation works. And I think you know you know Phyllis and the team there was really important and heavy handed on writing down what they felt was going was most relevant to, to Gonstead. Um, I mean, Gonstead was a, he was a practitioner, you know, first and foremost. And I think like, you know, like Lester Cheel, who's involved in this story. I mean, he helped bring forth clarity to Ted Markham, Phyllis Markham and, and Bud Grove, who are literally in, in, and Lee Vogel a little bit, you know, what, what is Gonstead's theory of, of how does, what is a subluxation? And I think, you know, they, they were looking at the science around them and they were looking at, you know, sort of their instructors at Lincoln College there or Lincoln Chiropractic and, uh, you know, trying to fit that into a story of like, this is this is our, our ideas of what subluxation is about. So, yeah, again, it fit nicely with what was going on in the science in terms of like, you know, mainstream or, or, or allopathic medicines sort of ideas about the disc too, because the disc was kind of a, a very popular topic. Again, it was sort of the crutch uh, or, or, or Achilles heel of, of allopathic medicine. So, you know, that's why chiropractors are so successful. They're, you know, they're able to address low back pain and, and, and med medical doctors can't do anything about it surgically or, you know, pharmacologically. And I think so. The disc was a very popular thing to be talking about, and it was it fit nice to the Gonstead story. Yeah, I, so I'm thinking about, we have listeners all over the world, um, and so many in Europe, many in Asia, uh, and a lot of them are not as familiar with this story as many of the students here are. That a lot of times, by the time we see people in the clinic doing the extravaganza or something like that, they're quite familiar with Gonstead. And so to them, it's like going to Disneyland. Um, mm -hmm. And yet I think there's a lot of others elsewhere that are just catching on to this and are like, what is this thing? And I, when I was reading your, um, 
I think it was your prelude at the very, very beginning. Um, kind of, you wrote a statement. I don't know if I can find it very fast, but it was something along the lines of, oh, I turned right to it. What are the odds of that? Um, but it had to do with the fact that with diversified, you kind of had this um, discombobulated conglomeration of different things. But that the most important thing was, in the end, it was hard to make it work. And the Gonset system, while we always say it's complicated and it's really difficult and it takes a long time to learn, in the end, something that actually works is the easiest way. And so um, as, as we kind of get into that, how how much did you find about um, like Gonstead's way of doing things? How was it accept when, as he was doing it, how accepted was it? And were people eager to do it or were they resistant against it? Did he, did he become like a hero or is he more like a, well, that guy's a little crazy. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I tell it quite a bit in like a couple of the chapters, why Gonza became so successful, you know, like, you know, over beyond just the patients, why, why did other chiropractors come to see him? And I think it, again, it gets back to, you look at full spine chiropractic adjustments compared to what Palmer was teaching at Palmer at the time. I mean, it was it was it was really this hole in one idea, and again, the idea of adjusting, you know, a T seven or a left SI or you know, an L five. I mean, things like that were being overlooked, and I think that you know Fred Barge is you know I, I think I mentioned him briefly in there, you know, and others who simply. You know, chiropractic is it's a family business in many ways. And, and when you have sons or daughters are going to chiropractic school in the 40s or 50s or, you know, maybe in the 60s, and they can't adjust an L5 when they're coming home you know, over the holidays, you know, dad's going to simply say, what is going on here? And I think so, you know, Clarence helped fill that void. He was able to give them a practical education on how to adjust. I think that's part of the problem in the chiropractic educational system. And I, I do touch upon this in, in, at some point here is you know, chiropractors are indoctrinated so much with medical education at this point to pass basic sciences in various boards that they've lost sight of the actual uh, process of actually being a chiropractor. And, I, and when you think about it, chiropractor success is, is determined upon their ability to move a bone that needs to be moved. And I think that's at the first and foremost of, you know, the execution of education. Clarence was the you know one that simply was doing it. You know, he was doing it based upon his education when he was at Palmer in the twenties. I think we've lost sight of that. You know, we're we're doing all this differential diagnosis. And I think, you know, when I look back upon my education at Northwestern and Diversified, I think that was really a lot of the problem. And I, I give an enormous amount of credit to the Gonstead practitioners who've taken on interns. And I, I think, you know, I think one of the best models out there is the Troxel model. I think that what Troxel did is he created a very friendly, inclusive environment for people to be successful chiropractors. And I think, I mean, I, I give a Larry, I mean, I, I was never, I'm not a Troxel intern. I didn't even go to Palmer. But I think when I look back upon um, the program, I think you, you see success after success after success. And when I define success, I've seen the application of chiropractic. Like they can find a subluxation and they can adjust. It's amazing. And I think when you look at like when you graduate from you know like school, like to say Northwestern, you you don't see that. You don't see the attention to the actual chiropractic of 
can you find the subluxation and then can you actually move a PIEX? You know, I mean, it just it's and it's I think that's because it's gotten distracted and I, I do talk a fair amount about it and I think a part of it is also the distraction of uh, is is we've the lack of technology in chiropractic. I think like you know the Delta T or the, you know the Temposcope or Nervoscope. I mean that's a wonderful instrument, but it's certainly old. I mean we could certainly be using something better. And furthermore, it, it, there could be an instrument out there that could be much more unifying for all of chiropractors to use for universal assistance for finding subluxations. But again, the nature of the chiropractic organization has not been uh, amenable to that. And I think that's that's certainly a flaw of the profession, chiropractic profession at large. But again, I think like when you get back to it, I think that the, you know that educational component of finding a subluxation and fixing it uh, using the onset method. It, you know, it, it's just, it's so elegant. And again, the success of why Clarence, uh, the whole system, why it's successful, there's so many people in this story that made it successful. And again, it gets back to what Lester Cheel did for the x-ray issues that he, he stumbled across when doing full spine x-ray. He, he helped solve that issue. I think you've got the devotee and Philip Markham that had the patch make it work. And I think you had... You know, he had these early believers, and then subsequently, you know, it led to Larry Troxel, Thatcher, and others that, that, that helped with it. Um, so I, I just think that whole, you know, there's a number of people. And, and again, getting back to one other thing, I don't want to forget when I'm, I'm going on this, but is is the book, the chapters were seminal. I think that was another very important part of this, is that that book, Roger Herbst wrote it, and in the format that he wrote it, because it's very readable. Mm -hmm. I mean, reading his, it, it, he's an excellent author. He gets right to the point. He knows where to put his periods. He knows where to end that. I mean, he covers everything in a way, a complex idea, and he, he just, it's very easy to read. And I think that book helps anybody walk away from, once they've read it, like how to actually find a subluxation and fix it. And I in some ways, that's the most basic and yet comprehensive chiropractic education you get is, is, is that book. Combined right. with personal experience of a mentor like Troxel or, or whoever, it, it, that's the recipe for success as a chiropractor, you know, being a chiropractor. Yeah, I agree. I, I went to LACC. And so going there, it seemed like the more I learned things in the model of the school, the further it took me from chiropractic. And that's because the further it took me from the subluxation. So then being exposed to Gonstead, it was like, wow, you mean I can come back to chiropractic? I can come back to the subluxation? So yes, I'm shooting x-rays, but it's for the subluxation. I'm scoping for the subluxation. I'm palpating for the subluxation. So it's back to the subluxation and the adjustment becomes an art form. It becomes the crux of what we do. And to me, that was appealing because I felt like everything else was just taking me the other direction. So I think I for that come up in that evidence-based world, we get out and we go, yeah, but where is it taking me? <laughs> it's taking me nowhere. So Yeah, and then you can find the world of insurance on top of that. So you have competing right. insurance of, of, okay, now I should use a TENS unit on a patient. I should have ultrasound. You, you have you, – then you're yelling, getting into the world of muscle work. Uh, and, and you're like, hey, physical therapy is very important. I mean, there's certainly a role for it, but – when you're talking about an L5 exploitation, you know, a gonset adjustment is the very best thing for it. So, 
Yeah, I agree. I think all of us have. That's why we we become lifelong Gonstead uh, people. It sort of, um, you know, you, you recognize what what you're capable of doing, and you see it in and out. Uh, you know, in, in the work that you, that you do. Yeah, one of the things Gonstead did that I don't know that we recognize very often, but it's um, it's kind of an amazing feat on its own is the community he created, because I can talk to chiropractic Gonstead doctors anyone in the world, really, but we do it at the extravaganza all the time. We come from all over the country. We're all coming from different places. We hardly see each other, talk once in a while, but we come together and we're like family because like everybody's of the same mind. And he really made a very interesting community that I, I don't even know to what extent he really got to enjoy it, but he did create this. Yes. Yes. You know, the thing is, I, you know, I, I know that we, we, we think a lot, there's so much to Clarence Ganson, but I, I, one thing I tried to bring is the personal element into the book as well because it was much larger than simply, uh, it's more complicated than than basically being a chiropractor. I mean, I know he had some hobbies outside of chiropractic um, that, he, that he, I would have loved to be able to tell more stories about, but I, unfortunately, I just didn't find too many of them. But, uh, you know, the other thing is I think that I would have loved to got more was the conversations that occurred between Merton, his brother, and him. His brother had an enormous practice, almost as big as his, uh, down in Beloit, Wisconsin. Yeah. And, and again, I told a little bit of that story in there, but uh, his brother went in a completely different, not completely, but a, a slightly different direction of, of finding and fixing a subluxation than Clarence Constead. From a pure economic perspective, he was, you know, almost as successful as Clarence. So, I mean, uh, when you step back from everything, it is certainly it's it's tough that uh, it becomes challenging to sort of purely justify Clarence Johnson's method when his brother did do something different and was economically about as successful. I mean, it, it, you can't. It's tough to, to rectify that. And I, I personally, it's 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 just the way chiropractic is. I mean, that's why you see competing techniques. Yeah, last time I was at the extravaganza, I took a little detour. And we went by that clinic. I wanted to get some pictures of it. So we went by that clinic and it's beautiful in its own right. It's, yes. it's different, but it's similar. Like it's, it is amazing. You can tell that he and Merton were of a similar mind, but they were still individuals. And it, there's a beauty in that. Yes. That, yes. So um, Steinman was an architect based out of Monticello, Wisconsin. Dresser was uh, another architect based out of Madison who designed that. And interestingly enough, in the architectural historian world, you know, there's, there's a lot of architectural historians who who value Gonstead. They, they're like, yes, the Gonsteads did amazing work. And I'm always like, what do you mean? They're like, well, they made major investments in architecture. And when you stand back, they really did. I mean, between yeah. the two clinics and then Clarence's house, I mean, they're standout pieces of architecture that, you know, people are very impressed with in that world. So, you know, we're chiropractors. We don't, we can, yeah, we recognize a little bit of it, but you know, that work stands on its own in the architectural world. And again, those yeah. are large sums of money. I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you think about what Clarence spent on that and what Merton spent on his clinic, which is, you know, there's not a flat wall in that clinic. It's all, right. it's a hemi-cycled um, type of structure. So yeah, I mean, they, they, they poured a lot of money into that. So. Yeah. When I saw it, I thought, Wow, that's bigger than I thought it would be. And 
obviously way more expensive than I thought it would be. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a very interesting architecture, to say the least. It's one of those things that you really can't describe. You have to see it. And then when you do, you can't forget it. Yes. I mean, I would have loved to have a whole chapter about his brother, but uh, it just never worked out. And Kurt, his, his son, um, didn't know that much. And, and it just wasn't like he, he, he shared with me everything he had, which was like, you know, the way Kurt, you know, described it was like, yeah, I had an uncle who was, a, you know, a successful chiropractor in Mount Horb, Wisconsin, period. And stop. The end. It was like, well, what about this or that? And he's like, I, I don't know. Huh. So there, there wasn't, he couldn't really tell me too much more than that. Yeah, it was interesting. I didn't even know that the, I didn't even know that Merton's clinic was there and, it, and Dan Lyons just mentioned something about it. So I asked him where it was, mapped it and was like, it was on my way. I'm going to yes. go see it. So that if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have even known it was there, much less seen it. Yes. But yeah, it's funny how I do think that Merton actually is a bigger part of the story than we often talk about because I know from your book, you go back to the beginning and in the early days, it was just Clarence and Merton. Yes. Yes. Yep. And their, you know, their wives didn't particularly get along. And, and um, the other thing is Merton went on to have children and had a family and uh, his family was very important to him. And Clarence, you know, he continued just to be, a, you know, work and work and work and work and work. So, um, you know, when you have kids and your and family, you, you, you have a perspective on life and Kirk, Kurt, interestingly enough, went on to be a very, I mean, he's very, he, you know, unfortunately passed away now, but he was an interesting guy. He became a very successful car racer. Um, he was a very important member of the community there. And uh, he was very important in the chiropractic legislative work that occurred in the state of Wisconsin. So, yeah, there's certainly a story there. I just, I just don't think it'll ever really come together. I mean, it, there might be pieces of it out there still, but it's, it might be, it might never really get told. Interesting. Yeah. The, so the story I've always heard about the Nervoscope was just that Clarence had to buy one when he graduated. So he had it sitting on a shelf and he was like, well, if I got to pay for this thing, I might as well figure out how it works. And so <laughs> he started using it. Now, from what you found, is that story true, remotely true, not true at all? No, I mean, the, the Nervoscope was a very popular instrument. I mean, BJ was was promoting uh, it up and down the Mississippi like none other. So, I mean, right. yeah, I mean, you had to buy a nervous gift. There was really no doubt about it. And again, it was a huge marketing piece. And even Clarence Gonson, and you can see it in my book. I mean, I mean, for a guy, Clarence, Clarence, Clarence you know, sort of had this lore of he never marketed. Well, I mean, clearly he marketed the nervous gift. I've got, you know, examples of him marketing it in, in the local newspaper. So, I mean, it was a popular instrument. I mean, it was used to, to bring patients in, but it was an important part of, uh, you know, finding subluxation. And it's something that Clarence never gave up. And he simply relied on it to find it. And it was something that, you know, he was taught by BJ. You know, BJ went in a slightly different direction with it. And, and Clarence just stayed true to the full spine model using a nervous scope and, and full spine adjustments. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, my goodness. I... I had a question in my head. Now I forgot it. I distracted myself. Um, oh, man, now I can't remember what it was. Well, so a few other things to touch upon. I, I hope, you know, I tried to, uh, to try. I did include both uh, wills in, in, the, in the appendix so that people would have a good understanding of what kind of happened in the end in terms of the revenue and the money that was involved with the guns that it stayed. So I did include those in there. Uh, it was interesting to, to read, uh, and I think it's one of the, the 
the things that sort of frustrated me is that there was a lot of people giving Gonstead money to become chiropractors. And uh, I just I just don't see a lot of those recipients uh, going on to, to make a mark or participate in the Gonstead world uh, after that, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, yeah, you're right. When you look back, you see a lot of Troxel people that, that feel that lifelong commitment to the education and the clinic and the work. You know, they, they participate in various ways. Uh, and I just feel like when I was reading through some of the recipients, they were, I mean, these people were all strangers to me who were getting practically, if not full ride education to chiropractic school. I mean, a lot of us would love to got that, you know, but these people got it and they just simply walked away from the work once they've gotten their checks. And it was really unfortunate to see a lot of that happening. Yeah, that's true. Cause from time to time I would hear names of these, of some people and when I figured out what ages they would be approximately, I was seeing other people those ages, but I wasn't seeing those people. And it, and it, it definitely was like, well, where's the knowledge? <laughs> Where did it go? Yes, yes. Um, all right. Oh, well, my question didn't come back to me. I totally lost it. I don't even know where it went. The other um, thing is I did include in the very back, you know, a section on testimonials. Uh, I felt those were helpful for people as part of the overall story. I did have a fair number of more uh, testimonials, but uh, it, it just, you know, like you only put so many in. And the other thing is, uh, you know, some of them were, um, you know, like I, I, I would interview somebody and you know, they would tell me, you know, 10 testimonials. So I'm putting all 10 testimonials in, I, I put the best five or four or whatever it was and put them in there. So, you know, it's nice to sort of do that. Um, you know, it's nice to sort of, figure out, you know, the connection to the Green Bay Packers. There was always sort of that discussion about, you know, did he treat the Green Bay Packers and stuff like that. And, right. you know, there was a relationship clearly between Alex Cox and, and uh, the Packers, which was fantastic. And just things like that. So, um, you know, I tried to capture, as, I, honestly, I tried to capture everything. And it, it, even if it was just, you know, a tertiary touch point, I tried to either put it in an endpoint put it in the appendix, uh, make sure that we, we, we didn't uh, uh, miss anything. You know, another like another tip that I'm just thinking of is the Rolex. You know, Clarence Gonsett's always heavily identified with, uh, you know, a beautiful Rolex watch. You know, I wasn't sure what the model it was or everything like that. But it was it was, it was was great to see some closure to that story. Um, I did eventually get to see or, or the owner of the current watch that he you know, the Rolex watch that he did have. So it was nice to actually see it in person. Um, so that was neat. Um, and again, finding the, finding the Cadillacs and, and sort of hunting those down was, was a kind of an Indiana Jones experience, which was a fun process. And I was very thankful for all the people that helped, helped me along the way to find those cars. And then, you know, it was mm -hmm. nice to be able to bring the, the Cadillac, the Elvis Cadillac, a limousine back to the clinic and, and have that be there uh, as sort of a permanent part of the, the concept uh, clinic there. So, yeah. You know, when they go visit now, they can see it. It was nice to find that. And they classic, you know, in many ways, because it, it was a barn find, you know, it was sitting in a pole barn. Really? Uh, yeah, south of town. 
uh, in storage for years. I mean, it had been there for nearly 20 years at the pole barn, and it was it was it was amazing to find. I, uh, well, essentially, what happened was the auctioneer sold it to um, the guy in Norway. His name escapes me at the moment. So uh, he, he, the, the auctioneer agreed to store it for this the, the chiropractor uh, in Norway, and uh, so he had been storing it uh, for him until he could get it transported uh, across across the Atlantic, but uh, it ended up never happening. So he just kept it in the pole barn uh, for years and years and years and years until I called him. And then eventually I, I worked out a deal uh, between the chiropractor up in, uh, in Norway and, um, and, and the, uh, the guy, the auctioneer. And then we, we drove it up to the clinic and, and put it in, in the garage. And it, now that's where it sits today. So Awesome. I remembered what my question was because yes. it was coming off the uh, Neuroscope thing. That I realized that even with the neuroscope, Dr. Gustav was always tinkering with things. He was always trying to make them better. So um, he was trying to come up with a better version of the neuroscope. He um, he improved X-ray. Came up with his own Viking X-ray system. Um, he did those kind of things. Did did you? I, 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 let me let me rephrase that for you. I, I think he was open. Oh, is that what it was? He, he was open to to improvements. It wasn't. I mean, so you know, like in uh, you know technology, there's. There's the there's the engineer who actually sits on the bench and improves it, and then there's the you know the clinical like I'm going to use that. So if you invent something that you think might improve, please bring it to me and I'll be the first user in promoting it. And I think that's more what Clarence was. Clarence was, you know, if you had a better X-ray machine, he would be interested in hearing about it, and he would he would get in front of it and promote it. And, and he was more than willing to be a business partner to make that a reality. And I think of the Viking X-ray as an example. I mean, it wasn't like he sat down there and said, you know, I have I have this, you know, equipment to sort of do this. No, he, he you know, he, he's he's just a, a classic example of a key opinion leader who's able to take a new technology and make it relevant to to the group and, and make it, uh, you know, viable and, and and improve it because he's the key opinion leader. That's interesting because that was that was kind of my question because I'd always been told, oh, Gonstead invented the Viking. No, and I no, thought no. to myself, where does a guy find time to invent things when no. he's seeing patients 24 hours a day? No, like, that doesn't no. make any sense. <laughs> no, there's, there was an x-ray company that approached him about an idea to make the x-ray machine better. And so he's like, yeah, this work. And so he provided that team of engineer or the engineer or whatever it was, the, uh, the ability to say, okay, let's do this to improve it so that we can get better full spine x-rays. And so that's mm-hmm. how that process. So. And that's, that's how all, you know, even to this day, that's how commercialization of medical technology or, occurs. So, Right. Yeah. Right, because we always speculate now as to if Consta was alive today, what technology would he be incorporating? And, of course, we'll never know that. But yeah. it is kind of a fun game to play because he did seem to be an early adopter, even though he didn't always adopt everything. Yes. He, he seemed to be an early adopter who saw things and saw, oh, there's potential there. Yes. And I think when you look at, like, uh, medical technology commercialization, that's exactly how it works. You go to, you know, if you, if you got a better, you know, I'll use an example. If you have a better pacemaker, you're going to go to the guy who puts the pacemakers in people's chests and you're going to say, well, this is why we have a better one. And he's like, wow, you're right. This seems better. Right, let's put it in 50 patients and see what happens. And then if it works pretty well, I, I'll be out in front of it. Now I'll, 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 you know, and that's that's what that was Clarence's role. I mean, Clarence was he was the key opinion leader in in 
you know, if you were EDL and you were having a scope and you were selling most of the scopes, you'd go to him with, hey, this is a, a prototype. What do you think about it? You know, and he, you know, he would, he would tinker with it. So. Yeah. And on the clinician side, I see that if you've got something and you're using it day after day after day, eventually you start thinking, man, I wish this was more like that, or I wish something was a little differently. So then if somebody comes along and says, hey, I've got an idea, and they suggest the thing you're already thinking, then you're like, yeah, run with that. Keep going. Yeah, and I think when it gets back to is like Clarence Gonsai would, would no longer be using the tempo scope or, you know, or nervous scope. I think it, it, technology has evolved. He would have helped facilitate the process of, of having some sort of refinement to that technology. One of the biggest differences I think what happened since Clarence Johnson in the 60s and 70s and today is, I mean, we've got to take this in perspective, is, is chiropractors, if you were successful back then, you were making large sums of money. Mm -hmm. And when, you, when you're making, you know what I mean? Like if, if Clarence Johnson, I don't, I, don't, I don't know exactly what the dollar amount would be in today's day, uh, dollars, but when you're making that kind of money and you have, the other chiropractors making the same amount who are of the exact same mindset mindset like you can say to a engineer we want this to happen you have the financial resources to say okay yeah let's let's put together a five million dollar nervous code i mean today you don't i don't care how much money as a chiropractor like yeah you know Gonsai Clinical Studies Society is not going to be like, oh, yeah, we're going to do a $5 million R&D project to improve the, the nervous scope. It's just <laughs> right. reality. Back then, those guys were making that kind of money, and um, R&D projects, while expensive, were within the, the budgets of chiropractors. I mean, medical machinery or medical technology wasn't quite as expensive. It was expensive. It wasn't like what it is today where you're like, oh, you know, to do a, to do a medical – Technology commercialization project, you, it could cost you a hundred million dollars just just to get it off the ground, and then it might take another hundred million dollars to commercialize it. I mean, you can't even fathom that in chiropractic. I mean, you would have to be tied to an insurance company that said, "Yes, we're going to reimburse you for that medical technology use, like a CT scanner, and we're going to pay you, you know, three thousand dollars every time you use it." This doesn't even exist, and that's why I think like technology's gotten so expensive where chiropractors cannot participate in the process of technology development. Back then, technology development was well within the financial resources of chiropractic. Today, it's, it's, it's in the realm of, of medical institutions are willing to pay, uh, and insurance companies are willing to pay for you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for med medical innovation. So, yeah. So. yeah, that's an interesting point. That's definitely true. Yeah, we end up playing small time, just trying to make a little tweak, like just tweak yes. it a little, make it a little bit different, but not revolutionize it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like you guys don't have the money to simply be like, oh yeah, we're, let's put a CT scanner here and, and scan every single patient for the next five years to sort out can we rely on that, to, you know, to help understand finding a subluxation, or if we've got a great, you know, adjustment on it, you know, it's just it just it's just it's too expensive right now. It might change though with time, but. In the foreseeable future, it's certainly outside the realm. I do think that will change. Though. I think medical technology will eventually loop back to chiropractic, and you will see some sort of large innovation that will occur. I just think it's, it's you know, a hundred years away or something like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. That was very enlightening. Um, I enjoy hearing the other stories um, and hearing the story behind the story. So thank you for so much for coming on and sharing that with us. 
Yes, happy to talk to you, David. All right, thanks so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Amon for joining me today to discuss his book, Gonstead the Adjuster. If you do not own a copy of this book, you should, and I'm going to tell you how. I've already verified with Michelle at the home office that she has several copies that are ready to be bought and shipped. All you have to do is call Michelle toll-free at 888-556-4277. The cost of the book is a $160 donation to the Gonstead Research Fund. Supplies are limited, so be sure to call today. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Amon. It's always good to have these opportunities to learn from the history of Gonstead. Next week, we'll get back to the clinical side and discuss more about what it takes to be a great doctor in today's world. Until then, I hope you have the best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.